So if you as a physician can get to that place where you're like, listen, I don't have a reason to know this because I didn't study finance and I need to know the answer to this. So I'm going to maybe endure like eight seconds of feeling a little bit silly if you do feel silly, which you shouldn't. And then you're a little bit smarter and you've actually grown these muscles in the area of intellectual humility. And that's going to really continue to pay dividends you know, for the rest of your life. Welcome to the Solving Resident Burnout podcast, created by resident Dr. Daniel Orlovich for interns, residents, fellows, and yes, programs too. Designed to discuss real barriers from the front line and offer practical solutions. No stuffiness, no whining, no mandatory lectures, no glazing over the real issues, no wellness guru talk, just a casual conversation about real issues affecting residents and practical solutions. Today's guest is Justin Harvey. If you've ever thought to yourself, you know, being a resident is really tough. I don't have time to understand all this financial stuff. It seems overwhelming. Where's a good place to start? Then you'll really enjoy this episode. Justin Harvey is a financial planner, student loan expert, and physician spouse. He is a founder of APM Wealth, which is a financial planning and investment management company focused on anesthesiologists and pain medicine physicians. More importantly, he's a proud husband to an amazing anesthesia resident, his wife, Sarah, and proud dad to their new son, Calvin. He runs a terrific podcast titled Anesthesia Success. But Justin, tell us a little bit for all our listeners out there, the residents, the fellows. Obviously, we go through med school. We're in residency, about to become attendings. Learning the technical side of whatever specialty we're going into is hard enough. But you know, my discussions with people, when I bring up finances, they get very nervous. And you obviously understand finances from uh, you know, a particular training perspective, but you also have insight. Your wife is in the field as well. Tell us a little bit kind of about the background, and then we'll go into things kind of what people should not do and what people can do to tackle their finances. Yeah, awesome. Thanks a lot for having me, Dan. I'm glad to be here and speaking to your audience today. So I think the physician, the young physician, is in kind of a unique place because 99 times out of 100, whenever you walk into a room, <laughs> you are probably, in many cases, one of the more smarter and accomplished people in that room, just because physicians as a class of professional are very intelligent, very hardworking, very driven. You've overcome a lot to go through undergrad and medical degree and residency and maybe a fellowship. And you're essentially at the top of your game. And so what I find when I talk to physicians is that it can be very disarming very, frankly, embarrassing, or people can be ashamed when they, they would come to me with a financial question and they would be apologizing at the beginning. I'm like, I know this is a dumb question, but you know, I haven't looked at my student loans in the last six years because I've been so stressed. And I just basically didn't know who to trust and felt like I should know, but didn't know where the resources were. And so I just ignored them. That is not at all an uncommon conversation for me to have. And it's not at all an uncommon situation for physicians to be in. So I would say, for doctors out there who are feeling, I mean, especially, you know, it's a big contributor to burnout, like financial, the stresses of the financial situation of a young physician, it can be a big contributor to that. So the first thing I would say is like, look around and realize you're not alone, that most people are in the same boat as you, and you don't need to be ashamed or embarrassed or anything to be starting to learn about a discipline that you've just never had occasion to learn about. And I think very, very slowly, we're starting to see some programs 
at the med school level and a little bit in residency and fellowship, some programs trying to bring some training, some perspective to these physicians about here's what it means when you're a doctor from a financial standpoint. But that's still very slow in being implemented. And so what, what I'm seeing, and I think what a lot of my peers in the financial planning community are seeing is that we're often working with doctors who just have never had time to deal with their own finances because they're really hardworking and really busy and it just isn't a priority. And so by the time, in many cases, by the time they do find their way, you know, into my inbox, they're kind of past the point of, you know, it being definitely time to start taking a look at things. So, yeah, it's funny. You, you mentioned some programs are starting to introduce like financial planning concepts. I remember I talked to one of my mentors and I was like, Hey, what advice were you given when you're going through training? And he goes, three things. Don't divorce don't divorce and don't divorce. (laughs) And like, he looked up at me and I was like, surely there's more. And he's like, yeah. But to your point, like, I'm sure a lot of programs out there need more steps, need more knowledge. So you've obviously, you know, worked with a lot of residents, a lot of fellows, a lot of young attendings. What are some common things that are coming up? Those, you know, stupid questions, like you said earlier, and how would you respond to them? Yeah, we could do a whole episode on student loans. That's an area where I spend a significant amount of time. I won't do that to you right now, Dan, but student loans are a big one. Obviously, you go through med school, you know, you take out 50 or 60K per semester. And then by the time the interest piles up, you're in the two to 300K range or more if you finance parts of undergrad or if you did another graduate degree. So student loans are a big stressor. Having a plan for student loans can be an immense emotional relief. I regularly talk to people whom I'm helping with loans that like I have tears on the phone from the other end just because the catharsis of having a plan. Like it didn't take much, just us talking for 60 minutes and saying, here's your options. Here's what you need to be thinking about. Here's what it means to think about PSLF forgiveness. Here's what taxable forgiveness is. Here's what a full repayment strategy by using a refinancing approach might mean. And just seeing the options and then picking one, that can be immensely valuable. So I would say that is something that, you know, if you don't have a plan for your loans, you should be doing something intentionally. And there are people out there. I have a friend, Travis Hornsby, who works at studentloanplanner.com, a company he founded where he, him and his crew, of which I am a a part-time consultant with them, but he's done, I think Travis himself has done like 1600 individual analyses and the whole team has done somewhere in the mid 2000s, as far as like talking to doctors or attorneys, dentists, like people who are very, very indebted to help them get that plan. And that is It's just a really valuable thing to be able to know you're doing the right thing because student loans are very complicated. And honestly, by the time that this episode airs, this is today is the 22nd of May. By the time this goes live, like literally right now today, there's proposals being passed back and forth between the House and the Senate about do we do a 2.0 coronavirus, you know, stimulus that's going to involve maybe some substantive changes to the loan programs beyond what they've already done, which is the six month forbearance of zero payment, zero interest through the end of September. So there's a lot happening and it's not, you shouldn't feel bad about getting help with something as complicated as your student loans, because it's something that if you just ignore it and kind of let it fester, you're going to potentially lose time and cost yourself money. And it's a funny thing. Like it's different from investing. It's different from taxes. Like if you make a tax mistake, you know, you might cost yourself a few hundred or maybe a couple thousand dollars, or you make an investing mistake you know, as a young physician, you're probably talking the same magnitude, zero to $5,000 worth of a mistake, probably. If you make a student loan mistake, it can easily be a six-figure mistake, which is, it's unusual to have a, a young person have a financial decision that is so significant, but this is absolutely an area where it makes sense to 
either make sure you have a good plan or if you don't, make sure that you get one so that you can avoid the stress of a potential expensive mistake. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you touched upon the connection to burnout as well. Obviously, you know, we're all told the stat of the average amount of med school loans. But there is a study recently that I thought was interesting. It's not necessarily they showed the objective amount, the total amount that one was in debt, but rather it was the feelings that they had towards that debt. So one person might have a higher loan burden, but the other person has a lower loan burden, but they just feel more anxiety, more dread. And that was correlated with burnout as well. So I'm glad that you brought up like these very common feelings of like, I don't know how to create a plan. I don't even know how to begin to tackle this as well. You mentioned Student Loan Hero. Obviously, you offer services. And just for the listeners out there, like we have no like you know financial thing to disclose. I think Justin's a great guy, very articulate, very intelligent, and very willing to help out. What other ways would you recommend to listeners out there to kind of start to develop this plan? Yeah. So other than the student loan planner, which I mentioned, the White Coat Investor is a great website, has a lot of good resources. The physicianphilosopher.com is another good one. These are physicians who are trained in medicine, obviously, but also are, I would say, financial hobbyists to the point of approaching the expertise of many financial people I know, frankly, exceeding the financial expertise of some of the financial people that I know. (laughs) So if you're looking for like a DIY approach to say like, I just want to be able to understand the categories of questions to ask, those are a couple of great places to start. There's another guy, Ben White, who is, I believe, a radiologist and another student loan expert. If you're looking for people who are in the white coat community who understand loans and can explain your situation in a way that will help you make sense of it, that's a, an excellent first step. And if for no other reason than exactly what you said, Dan, to like reduce the mental load, because it is overwhelming, it is stressful, and you might have zero change to your financial situation, but if you increase your understanding just a little bit so that it doesn't seem quite as scary, so that there are less unknowns, it can just, it changes everything. It changes the color of the sky <laughs> on the way into work in the morning, and it changes just the way that you interact with your patients and changes your personal relationships. And just reducing that financial stress can be really transformative. So if you're feeling under the gun with that, then the first step, like you don't need to pay any money, just do a little bit of self-education and reduce that informational asymmetry a little bit. Take the things out there that you don't know and reduce those by just a little bit. And you may find that that's all that you needed to be able to have a greater degree of confidence in your own financial affairs. Yeah. Totally, I love it. Focusing on the first step, it reminds me of a story. I was working with this guy, a cardiologist, big name cardiologist, and he created this new technique. And obviously, he's a cardiologist, but he had to be on the regular medicine floors, I think, like once or twice a year. So during rounds, you know, everyone knows this guy. He's a big name. And he'd ask the most basic questions about other like systems that he was unfamiliar with. And I remember the first time he asked something and like everyone looked at him like, how the heck do you not know that? But it was because like he recognized, hey, I don't know this. Someone please help me out. I'm willing to get help. And then I finally like everyone realized like since he was willing to ask those quote basic questions, that's why he had this breakthrough for this new technique. So I I think it's great when people kind of show us ways to like, like you said, just if you want to do it yourself, go ahead and start. If you want more help, just decrease that asymmetry. I really like that phrase as well. Totally. And I think you that actually brings up a great point. I'll just mention this briefly is one of the things that I see that physicians have in common who succeed, and I'll call them like questions outside their domain of expertise, like finances or anything else is intellectual humility. 
when you understand what you're an expert in and what you're not an expert in, and you're not afraid to look dumb, but you're willing to ask those questions. This is something that <laughs> I, we were talking before. Like I do this on my podcast when I'm interviewing a doctor, I'll ask questions that probably most of the listeners in my audience know the answer to. <laughs> and I don't because I've grown in comfort just asking without shame, I guess. So if you as a physician can get to that place where you're like, listen, I don't have a reason to know this because I didn't study finance and I need to know the answer to this. So I'm going to maybe endure like eight seconds of feeling a little bit silly if you do feel silly, which you shouldn't. And then you're a little bit smarter and you've actually grown these muscles in the area of intellectual humility. And that's going to really continue to pay dividends you know, for the rest of your life. Definitely. Definitely. What kind of questions do you find you work with a lot of physicians? What are some common ones that they they talk about or the ones that you find most interesting? Yeah, good question. So there's questions. I spend a lot of time reframing questions. So aside from the student loan piece, I have physicians who will say like, you know, what kind of investment returns did your clients get last year? Or like, how can I be, you know, paying less in taxes or other like, you know, if I hire you, are you going to be able to earn back your fees for me in the first year? And a lot of times the questions are, you know, I, I think they're they're interesting in it reveals how the physician is thinking about either their finances or about the services of a financial planner. So, you know, if somebody said, how did your investments do last year? It's funny, you know, I've got like 27 clients right now and many of them I manage zero assets for. So I have physicians who are making 300, 400, 500K a year and they don't have investments because they're only a few years into practice. They're paying down debt. They're paying off their mortgage. They're working on their student loans. They're doing other things very intentionally. And so the question that a physician would think like, if Justin answers this question, I'm going to have an idea of how helpful he'll be to me. If he tells me, oh, my clients got 11% last year, that is kind of like the most irrelevant statistic that I could conceive <laughs> because it's likely that if new in practice attending starts working with me outside of your 403B or 401k, you're probably not going to have a lot of investments unless you're able to already like pay off all of your loans by the end of residency, which some people are able to do if they, you know, have help paying for med school or work their way through in some way. So I think I try to sort of reframe that question of like, what did your portfolios do last year to saying like, what is the value of working with a financial planner? Is it valuable? Are some planners valuable and some aren't? Understanding advisor compensation is something that I really, really hammer on because it, this is actually the same in medicine. And this is why we have anti-kickback laws and Stark laws and the Sunshine Act and all these other things that are designed to create transparency in physician compensation. Like if you go to a, a doctor and they say, oh, definitely use you know XYZ product. And that doctor was getting paid $100,000 a year to consult with the company that created that product. Wouldn't you want to know that? There's a similar idea in finances where if you understand how an advisor gets paid, you can understand in many cases, to some extent, their motivation, the paradigm in which they advise. And if they're suggesting products or insurance policies or investments that they could potentially earn a commission on, then you as a consumer, you should be informed about that and you should want to know. But you've got to ask the question. So that's another important question. Either I will get it from time to time. How do you get paid? Or I will tell people to ask it if they don't. Like, let me explain to you how compensation works in the advisory world. And what you want in a perfect world is to work with a financial advisor that is fee only. That's F-E-E only. What that means is there's no commissions associated with the way that they give advice. So if I'm working with a client and I say, here, do step one, step two, step three. These are the three things I recommend that you do for your finances. I am paid on a fee for service basis by that 
physician for my advice. And so if they do step one and step two and step three, they actually take those actions. I'm getting zero additional compensation. Whereas the vast majority of advisors out there are going to be operating in a different fee structure where if you do step one, step two, and step three, you're going to be earning a commission and getting additional compensation. So instead of a financial plan, it's really more like a sales process to sell financial products. It's not inherently wrong or bad, but it is a conflict of interest that it's important to be cognizant of. Yeah. And I think people in medicine, that was good, Justin, because I think people in medicine understand that it's like our incentives aligned. Yeah. You know, it's like as a patient, as a physician, as a nurse in the room, what's everyone's incentives? And like you said, they're not necessarily bad, but let's understand if we have a case that's about to start at 359, maybe the surgeon wants to go, maybe the anesthesiologist might want to go, maybe the nursing staff that gets off at four, they may not want to go because once again, the incentives are in line. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I've been to enough of these medical conferences where physicians who, you know, disclose their conflicts of interest on the second slide of their presentations, it's not bad. It actually, in some cases, shows like how broad their expertise is and how many things they know about. That can be a good thing. But the most important part is to just disclose, disclose conflicts of interest and make sure you understand where they exist. Totally. No, I love it. And there was a recent study too, looking at social media, obviously podcasts are part of that, where how can the viewer earn trust or believe more in the show? And one of them was disclosing and being upfront that here are my conflicts of interest. Switching gears a bit, you touched upon kind of student loans, which is a big you know, issue for residents and fellows and new attendings. And you also mentioned some terms, the 401k, the 403b, the Roth, IRA, stuff like that. So switching to retirement accounts, you know, the global big picture view, what's your take on that? What would you want to tell the listeners out there about retirement accounts? Good question. This is doing any type of broad brush financial advice is a bit of a minefield. <laughs> So let me give you some rules of thumb, which you'll have to take with a grain of salt. And I'm going to make a little disclaimer here that this is no substitute for personal financial advice. Please consult your own fee-only financial planner before doing anything. Having said that, as an attending physician, your biggest expense just went from your rent as a fellow or a resident to your taxes. So what this means is any pre-tax retirement savings you're able to make are going to go a long way towards reducing your tax bill. So in the year 2020, the 401k or 403b plan limit, meaning the most you can possibly save is $19,500. I would say all things being equal, there are only a very few reasons you should not do that, but most people should be trying to max out that 401k, 403b, assuming that financial independence is something that's important to them, which for most physicians... If it's not, I'd say it ought to be because if you're financially independent, you're autonomous, you're free, you can do whatever you want, you can work 0.6, you can take less shifts, you can live life on your own terms. So moving towards that goal is something that's really valuable and something that I try to help my clients with at every turn. So whether that's a 401k, which is basically like the private practice version, the the for-profit world version of a retirement account, or a 403b or 457, which are more common in the nonprofit or the government-related sectors that threshold, that limit, that 19.5 would apply to any of those. In addition, if you have access to an HSA, you can do another 7,000 a year into that. It's the same idea. It's a pre-tax savings account. That 7,000 limit assumes that you're married. So if you're single, it will be less. That's, I would say, the low hanging fruit with regards to retirement accounts. A more important question, and this goes back to the idea of reframing. (laughs) If you came to me, Dan, and you said, I'm thinking about saving for retirement, what are the most important things to look at? I would say, number one, the most important thing is Think about your savings rate. 
What percentage of your income are you able to save on a monthly or yearly basis? If that number is really high, then many of the other details don't matter <laughs> because you're saving so much that you're going to be able to achieve any financial goal. Whereas if that savings rate is very low, then the most sophisticated investment strategy that is the most tax optimized, it won't matter on the other end. Like it won't be sufficient to get you to financial independence because you're just not saving enough. So the biggest determinant of moving towards financial independence, of achieving financial success is saving as much money as you can. Like as soon as you're in attending, if you can start saving six figures per year between your 401k, 403b, whatever you've got, and a taxable investment account, and maybe doing a backdoor Roth IRA contribution and doing that every year for the first five or 10 years in practice, then you're going to be 38 years old and sitting on like a million seven. And you're going you're gonna to have significant autonomy from a job description standpoint, from a type of practice you're in standpoint. And you're going to be in the power seat if you're negotiating, asking for a raise, any of that. Whereas if you only save, you know, 19,500 a year, you think, okay, I'll max my 401k every year. That'll be sufficient. Do that for 10 years. Now you're at like 200k, 300k. And that is not nearly the same, obviously. Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. It's living like a resident, right? That's right. Yes, exactly. There's different varieties of that. And you got to find the one that works for you. Yeah, yeah. I think you can live like a resident or you can live like a resident plus a little more <laughs> as long as your savings rate is high enough to achieve your goals. Yeah. My buddy, I was like, Hey man, are you doing a fellowship? And he's like, I am. And I was like, Oh, I thought you weren't like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm doing the financial fellowship. And to oh, your nice. point, like it was, it was like living like a resident, but he's like, I'm going to give myself a raise like five to 10%. Cause he's used to making, you know, 50, 60, 70,000 for the last five years, like 10%, a little bit bump every year felt like hey, a big bonus for him. Yeah. I think that's a great way to do it. And also, you know, it's great to celebrate. It's great to commemorate achievements, transitioning to attending hood, like definitely do that, but don't do it by, going out and buying a seven series Beamer and buying a $2 million house. Do it by like, you know, spending some amount on like a really nice trip or a really nice dinner or that $500 bottle of whiskey that you've been eyeing for the last two years. Like whatever it is, that's an extravagant thing to celebrate. Definitely do it, but just do it in a way that is going to allow you to maintain some financial sustainability. No. And I love the focus too on savings rate. You know, I grew up in the Midwest and like speaking generally here, you know, there's the people I grew up around not lavish spending styles, right? And their income wasn't high. But then I, you know, went to school in Orange County and I remember like going there, really nice cars everywhere. And I remember meeting people, they were making really great money, yet they were still like leasing things, loaning them. They didn't own their home. And I was like, how the heck, you know, are you guys making 10 times what people back home are making, yet you still haven't achieved financial independence? And then I finally realized like their savings rate is lower than the people back in the Midwest, just because like, yes, they're earning a lot, but like it shifted my focus to move away from the income part of that to like, what are their expenses? And their expenses were sky high with all those nice cars. And then, you know, kind of the generalized person back in the Midwest, like they might not be earning a lot, the people I grew up around, but their expenses were like nothing. So their savings rate was like much, much higher. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the things, you know, being a physician, you're going to have to understand at the beginning, you're swimming upstream if you're saving hundred K a year as a young attending, like most of your peers aren't going to do that. And you just got to be comfortable to some extent being a fish out of water. And if you say, you know what, financial independence is important to me. I love the idea of being 40 years old and having a million seven in the bank then you're going to live your life accordingly. And that is going to have implications for your lifestyle. But it doesn't mean, you know, you've got to live yeah, in yeah. poverty. 
And obviously there's, it depends geographically, the flexibility that you have. I mean, if you're in a very high cost of living area, you know, you're about to move down to LA, like LA might be a place that would be more challenging to do that compared to if you were in the Midwest. So you've got to sort of customize these principles based on who you are, what your specialty is, where you live and what your goals are for yourself and your family. Yeah. And that touches upon, obviously, I I think it's interesting whenever finances are brought up around physicians, some of us we're told like, don't worry about that. You know, it's almost to be crude. It's like, that's beneath you. You have a calling. You should do this for free. You have a privilege. And and to be clear, like I feel tremendously, you know, honored and it is very sacred privilege to take care of someone and restore their health. However, I feel like, and it seems to me that more modern understandings of physicians, it's like, we need to understand, like you're saying, how are we going to use this income? How do we understand how we're being paid? And essentially, like you said, like, how does that relate back to our lifestyle and like our goals and priorities? Totally. And this is only becoming more true. And if I could broaden the scope of our discussion for a moment from personal finances to business of medicine, medical economics, practice management, understanding operational finances for a practice. If you understand that stuff, you know, we were just talking before we hit record here, Dan, about understanding physician compensation. And it can be confusing. You might sign a contract for somewhere really only vaguely understanding the mechanism by which you will be paid. And that's a very dangerous place to be if you're stepping into a situation where you don't have the information you need to understand something as simple as how much money is going to be in my checking account every two weeks. So this is absolutely, even at the business level, at the practice level, spending time, investing the effort to get up to speed on those ideas as well, physician compensation contracts, understanding where the pitfalls are, especially early in your career. That's when you're at the the greatest danger of this informational asymmetry, the greatest danger of making a big mistake, that will pay for itself many times over in terms of mistakes avoided if you're able to do that. Yep. No, I love it. I love it. I am going to challenge you, Justin, here. I know there's readers out there that they heard, okay, someone's making 300, 400, 500. What about the residents making you know, 50, 60 who might have rent to pay might have med school loans and are told that they need to invest in retirement accounts. What would you kind of say hypothetically to them? Great question. Again, it always depends on whether or not that would be right for you. I would say in general. So I'm also kind of a pragmatist. I say like, based on the information of a situation, I can change my mind from the rule of thumb based on whatever's going on. So if a resident is scraping by, you're living in LA or San Fran or New York or a high cost of living area, your rent is like whatever, a couple grand or more per month. And you're, you know, you need to travel a couple times a year for your vacations to maintain sanity. And so you just don't have a lot, then give yourself a break. Like you don't need to save for retirement in residency if it's going to be a stressor for you, if it's going to like impair your mental health, if you're going to be worried about bouncing checks. I would say you should try really hard to be making payments on your student loans on an income driven plan. So if you're making 60K a year, you know, your calculation for either IBR, pay-as-you-earn, or revised pay-as-you-earn, those are the three income-driven plans that are most popular. It's probably going to be, you know, in the two to $300 a month range, depending on family size and some other variables. So it's in your best interest to be able to do that, to make those payments, especially, you know, if you're a single person, then being on revised pay-as-you-earn can be really beneficial because the interest rate subsidy, basically your loans are going to grow more slowly. So even if you end up going private practice after a four-year residency, the debt you have to pay back at the end of that residency is going to be significantly less than the debt you'll have to pay back if you just do forbearance, 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 defer, and like stick your head in the sand. And I've talked to people who have done that, and they're still able to handle it as an attending, but what happens is they end up paying about another $80,000 more 
in their first five years in practice than they would have if they had just been on revised pay as you earn where they're paying $283 a month and preventing their interest from growing out of control. So the student loan strategy is much more important than the retirement planning strategy as a resident. Okay, nice. And I think that's something like listeners should intuitively understand, right? You know, I tell people when I'm on like trauma or, you know, cardiac anesthesia, it's like, look, you don't want to see me. And they're like, what do you mean? And I was like, if you, you know, exercise a little bit, avoid certain foods and substances, like a little bit every day, you probably won't see me in the operating room needing to like do this major procedure on you. Right. And like, I get it, like avoid the things we quote should be doing, but we're ultimately going to have to pay down the line sometime or another. So I like how you're saying like, you know, just chipping away a little bit. And it sounds like that recognizes that you do have a plan. You do acknowledge it. You're not running from it. And like also financially down the road, it's going to save you a ton of money. Absolutely. And there's, there's one unique element of this that makes it especially powerful. And that's with this one plan that I mentioned, revised pay as you earn. If you're unmarried, Revised pay as you earn is like in almost every case the best plan for you. So if you're if you're listening right now and you're in forbearance and you're single and you're like a PGY2, you should almost certainly be on repay, revised pay as you earn. The reason is, is that repay has what's called an interest rate subsidy. So that Uncle Sam pays some of your interest every month, could be to the tune of like five hundred, eight hundred, a thousand dollars or more. So just by virtue of you saying, yes, I'm gonna be in repayment, I'm gonna make these two hundred and fifty or three hundred dollar a month payments. That also unlocks this ability to have Uncle Sam pay some big amount equal to half of your monthly unaccumulated interest. So if you have $2,000 a month of interest that's going to pile up every month because you owe 400 k and based on the interest rate, that's the monthly interest. If it's $2,000, if you pay 200 that takes it down to $1,800 of interest in a month that would then go up on top of the pile. But if you're on repay, that 1800 gets split in half and Uncle Sam contributes 900. So you pay 200, Uncle Sam pays 900, and then 900 goes on top of the pile. So you can see if you multiply the benefit of this over, you know, 4 years, you get $900 a month times 4 years. That's a lot of money. And that's that's real dollars at the end of the line. Yeah. No, I love it. It's a very specific strategy and it seems like to me a lot of people they benefit from that strategy there. And the other You've dealt with a lot of, you know, residents and fellows. You mentioned kind of the forbearance, stick the head in the sand. Any other things that red flags, things to avoid? I'm thinking like a ton of credit card debt, high interest loans, like anything that you've seen that you've been surprised and you're like, wow, that's really detrimental to your financial health. Credit card debt is obviously pretty damaging. I think beyond like the student loans, that's the one thing that almost everyone has in common or, or that many physicians have in common. Other than that, it becomes very individualistic. And there's like, questions about real estate, questions about like family financial dynamics and communication in the context of a family, defining financial goals. And then the more sort of nuts and bolts of like, do you have disability coverage? You know, do you have an estate plan? Is something, if you, God forbid, you and your wife get hit by a car tomorrow, like is somebody going to take care of your kids? Who is that person? Have you defined that in a legal document that's going to allow that care to happen? Those types of questions, those are the types of things that a good financial planner would be able to look at your situation and help you say like, here's the, you know, 75 questions that we could ask. Here's the 11 questions that really apply. And here's the three questions that I really recommend that you take care of in the next three months because they're a big liability or a big opportunity for you to handle in the short term. Yeah, I like that because it's kind of like taking it back to medicine. There are some basic things and, you know, 
the financial world as well as medical world that you can look up and kind of understand on your own, like you said, like student loans for a lot of the listeners. But then beyond that, it might be very personalized. And I think of like, you know, WebMD and Dr. Google. It's like, sure, if you type in like, I have chest pain, you know, and I'm sweating, it's going to be like, go to the emergency nearest ED. But like everything else, like the person who doesn't have a training in that probably shouldn't try to figure it out. And that's where you're saying like, go to a financial planner and be like, hey, this is beyond the basic questions. Can we talk? Yeah. And don't be ashamed. Like understand that if you make a lot of money, it's the I sort of put financial planning in the category of any other service, either white collar or blue collar, <laughs> that you're going to hire people to do in your future as a physician. Like, are you going to fix your own toilet? Are you going to cut your own grass? Are you going to roof your own house? Like maybe, but probably not. You don't feel guilty about hiring a roofer or a landscaper or a plumber. Don't feel bad about hiring somebody to help you manage your financial priorities. Mm-hmm. And for people who are interested, then like walk me through what is, what are the, one of those sessions look like? Like I take you my tax statements or you send me like a questionnaire? So yeah, it depends. So there's different ways in which a financial planner might work with somebody. Sometimes people come and say, I just need help with student loans. Can you help me get help with answering this one specific question? And then we would just address in a defined scope the answer to that question. Sometimes they say, you know, I have... A spouse and two kids and I'm making a lot and my spouse is making a lot and we just have money flying out the window and we don't know which way is up. We need somebody to help us with everything to get organized, get a plan and then implement that plan. And the approach in that situation is going to be more systematic and more of a process that's going to play out over a series of meetings to lay the groundwork. And then ultimately, in many cases, on an ongoing basis to implement, monitor, adjust and continue to enact the recommended plan. Got it. Nice. And last question. Obviously, I know you are behind the financial health. I'm behind it as well. I find myself sometimes when I talk to people and try to convince them, it's tough, right? And I'll try to show them a graph because a lot of times, I'm sure you've heard it like, and you brought it up earlier, that someone might say, oh, I'll wait till I'm an attending where I'm making attending money. And then like everything will be fixed in terms of like student loans, retirement, you know, basic stuff. And I try to like, you know, quote Einstein and bring up like, you know, the compounding is magic stuff. And I try to show them a chart. Question to you, like, what have you found that like convinces someone to take action early to get a plan? And like this actually pays off enormously. Great question. I mean, I try to educate as much as possible. You know, I have the podcast to provide those types of resources. And I try to have conversations with people like you who are, I would say, like kindred spirits and trying to get the word out. Ultimately, though, you would know this as a physician, you can't help someone against their will. (laughs) And so, Mm. frankly, I don't really try to like I would try to convince someone like this is a good thing you need to do it. But if they don't want to do it, frankly, my time is finite. The attention that I can pay to people's problems and helping them implement solutions is finite. And I want to direct that attention and that time towards people who are receptive to my help and want to implement the solutions I have to offer. So I actually, you know, if I'm talking to people about prospective financial planning, I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to convince them. I'm going to just mostly get to know them, explain to them what I do, and then ask them if they want it. (laughs) Because if they do want it, then I know that we're probably going to have a great engagement that's going to be really rewarding and fulfilling for me and really valuable and beneficial for them. And if they don't want it, then even the most sophisticated financial plan is really going to just gather dust on their shelf and not do them any good. And that's not good for anyone. They're not happy because they're not seeing results. And I'm not happy because I'm getting ignored. (laughs) So the approach that I take is like, let's educate as much as possible. And let's help people who are a good fit. Nice. And this podcast, your podcast, hopefully, you know, people who are interested in this, they can learn a little bit more. 
obviously you mentioned some resources. I'll link it in the, the show notes as well. But you obviously have your podcast, Anesthesia Success. That's also for people outside of anesthesia as well, kind of the core tenets. Some of the episodes, I'm sure fundamentals are talked about as well. Correct me if I'm wrong. That's right. Yeah. So some of it is, I would say, like broad financial topics for physicians. And some of it is more, I would say the majority of it is more niche specific in anesthesiology and pain management and trying to take these finance and career questions and tailor it to those specialties specifically. But there's definitely some that are more broadly applicable. Nice, nice. Justin, thank you so much for your time. Anything else you'd like to kind of tell the listeners about? I don't think so. It's, it's really been a pleasure speaking with you today. And I can tell you, you know, my wife is obviously an anesthesia resident and I see firsthand how stressful, <laughs> how all-consuming, how, how busy, frankly, residency can be. And I really, really encourage people to just don't feel bad. Don't beat yourself up. Don't be ashamed. If you feel like you're behind where you ought to be, quote unquote, I'm putting this in air quotes, there is no ought in this discussion. Just do the best you can with what you've got, the time that you have to be able to get to a place where you can build your confidence and grow your awareness of your own finances. And over time, uh, begin to make financial progress, like give yourself some grace (laughs) and understand that it is a journey. It does take time. And the people who you're going to look ahead of you in their careers that are really established not only clinically, but probably financially, if they've made some good decisions, they have made their mistakes along the way too. And if you've made mistakes, don't feel bad. Just start today to start, you know, pushing back against the, you know, just the informational asymmetry, as we mentioned, and and you'll be in great shape because at the end of the day, you've got a high earning profession and a lot of opportunity to be able to do things with that wealth. So yeah, that's great. It's very encouraging. A lot of times people who might be feeling burnt out, you know, like you said, it's inspiring to see the next step if we kind of take that awareness, exercise some compassion, you know, slowly but surely things get better as well. For people who want to learn more and kind of hear more about you, where can they find you? So my podcast is Anesthesia Success. I also, you can email me there, justin at anesthesiasuccess.com. And if you're interested in learning more about the financial planning side of things, my firm is called APM Wealth, as in Anesthesia Pain Management Wealth. And my niche is in working with physicians in those specialties. So I'd be glad to, whether or not you're in those specialties, I'm glad to try to connect you to resources or help you evaluate what would be a good fit for you. Because beyond just trying to grow my business, I really have a passion for educating and connecting people to good resources. Because there's a lot of financial planners like me out there that do really, really great work. And I can help you find them. There's actually, let me just mention a couple others, Dan, if I may. So the XY Planning Network, is an association of fee-only financial planners where if you go to that website, you can see a whole long list of hundreds of financial planners that will get paid in the sort of the compensation structure that I mentioned that removes almost every conflict of interest, as well as, you know, the physician finance websites, uh, White Coat Investor, Physician on Fire, there's others. They have recommended lists of financial advisors. Many of them are vetted in some way and they'll have their Usually they'll have a questionnaire where they answer a bunch of questions about themselves and their practice and they'll have their fee structure and all that. So if you're saying like, I think I need help. I heard that Justin said some interesting things. I want to be able to go to a place where I can get some professional help. That's a great place to start is just go to one of those websites, go to their recommended financial advisors page and just peruse until you find somebody that is a good fit for what you're looking for. Nice. That is wonderful. Justin, thank you so much. Obviously, personally, you get it professionally. You get it as well. And the listeners definitely got a lot of useful information. So thank you so much for taking time out of your day to chat with us. Thanks, Dan. It's been a pleasure. If you got any value out of this, please consider doing one of three things. One. 
Tell a colleague about this project. 2. Sign up for the curated quarterly newsletter. 3. Check out the book on Amazon. It's an easy-to-read, engaging how-to manual for trainees, supported by data and evidence-based solutions.